Uh, you can turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're speaking of God's righteous judgment. and We've been doing so for the past uh, five weeks. Hopefully this will be the last week on this. And uh, when you think of God's judgment or you think of justice, a lot of times um, certain images pop into your head. I know when I was with the DA's office, they in the courthouses, when I'd go there, they would have a, um, uh, a statue who was um, blindfolded with holding scales in their hand, trying to weigh out the uh, equity without being influenced by the appearance of whatever they see, but rather by the facts. And the idea that justice is blind means that Justice shouldn't take into account someone's looks or someone's position in life um, or any other issue in their life other than the truth. In Greece and Rome, they have a statue that was pictured not only with blindfolded eyes carrying the scales, um, but it actually had no hands. And the reason they had no hands is because their picture of justice was not only that they were blinded to what they could see, but they didn't want anyone to receive bribes. And so their statue had no, no hands. Um, that it couldn't be bought was the idea. Uh, we live in a vastly different age today, as you know. Um, justice is a goal that our society has, but a lot of times, unfortunately, uh, justice isn't carried out maybe the way that we think it should be. Um, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, it says this, You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Even in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, it says, You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, which we're going to talk about today, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of righteous justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And even in Psalm 17, verse 15, it says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike, being an abomination before the Lord. Psalm 82, 2 says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In Habakkuk 1, 4, So the law is paralyzed, And justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You know, the one thing that we have today in our society is a, you might say, a perverted justice. You hear things where people commit crimes and they get a slap on the wrist, or they don't even do jail time. And we're not talking about shoplifting, we're talking about abusing a child or sexually abusing someone, something like that, murder, um, harming someone in some way. And you see them get off and get off time after time because the legal system has loopholes and they know how to use them. Well, in our text for today, I want you to look at Romans chapter 2 because he's going to talk about justice. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse um, 11, actually. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they don't have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Notice it says there in verse 11, there is no respect of persons with God. None. It doesn't say there's some. It says there's none. That means that God is completely, totally impartial. When God looks at a person, he doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside. He looks at their conduct. He looks to see whether their deeds are righteous or unrighteous. So the issue isn't whether someone's poor or rich. The, rich, the, the issue isn't some, whether someone's a Gentile or a Jew. The issue isn't even whether someone's a man or a, a female, educated or uneducated, young or old, wise or foolish. That's not the issue when it comes to the judgment of God. Because he doesn't look at those things. As we found out last week, God's sentence is based strictly on character as manifested by a person's deeds, by their works. God is impartial. He can't be bribed. Some people think that, well, they're just going to live a good life and eventually, hopefully, you know, when I get before the pearly gates, it's all going to work out. Don't look at God that way. That's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a holy God, as we sang about this morning. We serve a just God. We don't serve a God who's going to let you skate, let you slip in a side door. God is completely impartial. Notice it that, that phrase there. It's kind of interesting in the original language, respecter of persons. He's not a respecter of persons. It's one word in the Greek text. But it's actually a combined word. And it's the word combined of face and receive. It's those two words receive uh, combined. And what it means is that God doesn't receive a person's face. That's literally what that means. He's no respecter of persons. He's not going to look at you one day and go, well, you're, you're just gorgeous. I've got to let you into heaven. Or, man, you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen. You know, there's no way you're coming. He doesn't look at those things. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? On the heart. God is not partial. What is partiality? Partiality is the sin of judging someone by their outward appearance or their outward circumstances, not their inward merit. We've all done that. We've all done that at times. Maybe we met somebody for the first time and thought, this person dresses weird, they act odd or whatever. But after a while, you get to know them, you kind of like them. But what were you doing? You were judging people by just their outward appearance. To have respect for a person's appearance is to rule in favor of what you see on the surface not really what's in their heart. Only an evil judge would do that because that would violate justice. It always cracks me up when criminals come to court, when they go before the judge. They usually are out of their orange jumpsuit that they've sit in prison or jail with that says prisoner on it, property of San Mateo County or whatever, and they have a suit and tie on Why do they do that? Because they want to look presentable. They want to look sometimes like something they're not. Sometimes these people don't even own suits. Their their defense attorney goes and, and gets one. Why? Because they're trying to make an outward appearance. And that's fine. The justice system allows for that. I don't begrudge them that. But think if a judge sat up there and said, you know what? You look, you've got a nice suit on, man. I love your tie. These charges, I think they're frivolous. Go, go ahead, just leave. That would be, you'd say, wait a minute, that, that's not right. God does not judge that way. God judges what's based on the heart, or it would violate 
his justice. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34, it says this, and this is Peter speaking. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality. Peter's preaching to a group of people and he wants them to know, hey, the God I serve is not partial. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or you're not. It's irrelevant. Galatians 2.6, Paul says God shows no partiality. Down a little further in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that we he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. In other words, what you put in is what you get out. God doesn't say, well, I know you've slacked off in your spiritual life most of your life and whatever, but here's a crown anyway. I just want to make you feel good. You know, that's the the problem with our society today. Everybody gets a prize. Everybody. Our society thinks that somehow to lose is a bad thing. And so if you have kids competing, I mean, God forbid that one kid would rise rise up above the crop and and, and take the winner takes all. No, no, no. Everybody's got to get a little little trinket to take home because we we don't want a little Johnny or a little Sally or Mary to, to feel like she's anything less than the best. That's what our society's focused on. But that's not how God judges. Everybody doesn't get the prize. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Speaking of God. It says the same thing in Colossians 3, 25, 1 Peter 1, 17. So we've been looking at these principles of judgment. The first one was the principle of knowledge. God will judge men based on the evidence that is given to him through knowing the law. The second one in verse 2 and 3 was the principle of truth. God will judge us according to truth. In other words, you can't finagle things. You can't finagle the facts. There's no loopholes. You can't hide the truth from God. And then thirdly, in verses 4 and 5, we looked at God will judge according to guilt. Because we're guilty. That's why. More than anything else of abusing his mercy and his grace and his goodness. And the forbearance and the patience of God. And then in verses 6 through 10, last week, we looked at God judges men based upon their deeds. He judges men based upon their deeds. In other words, he will look at their deeds, and by their deeds, he will determine whether, in fact, they have a right to enter eternal life or not. Now, some of you may be sitting there, and that like sets little alarms off in your head. If you turn over to John chapter 5, John chapter 5, Verse 28. Look at what the Word of God says. This is Jesus speaking. John 5, verse 28. He says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Then it says this, Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life judgment. What the Lord is saying here is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. That judgment will be made on the basis of good works. That's the objective. That's the basis upon God's judgment. Remember, good works are not the cause of salvation. They never have been, they never will be. Because the Bible says that salvation is a gift of God. What? Not of works. Good works are a consequence of salvation. They're not the cause of salvation. You can't do enough good works and eventually God's going to let you in heaven. No. 
But they're the consequence of salvation. In that same passage in Ephesians, it says, not of works lest any man should boast. And then it says, we were created, what? On two good works. We looked at that. Which God has beforehand preordained that we should walk in them. So our, our works, our deeds can become an objective evidence by which God judges us one day. Unless you get confused, there's also not just an objective evidence, but there's also subjective evidence. There's subjective criteria which God looks at, which is our faith. God knows who is a believer because their names are written in the book of life, the Bible says. This isn't to clarify things for God. This is to clarify things for us. You're not going to pull one over on God. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, will be judged, and they will be granted eternal life. That's that subjective criteria I'm talking about, because they put their faith in Christ, in the work of Christ, not in their own works. But the objective evidence is that their works will, in fact, support the subjective. Their works will support their faith. Because God judges on the basis of deeds. That's a principle in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. If you look at verse 6, what does it say? Romans 2, 6. He will render to each one according to his what? To his deeds, to his works. I mean, you can't finagle it. You can't make it say something it doesn't say. It's right there. He will judge men based on their deeds. In verses 7 to 8 of Romans 2, he says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's the basis of it, if you're seeking those things. But for those who are self-seeking, those who are seeking their own thing, he says, they don't obey the truth but they only obey unrighteousness, and for them, there's going to be wrath and fury. And in case you didn't get it the first time, he restates it in verses 9 and 10. He says there's going to be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, and then also the Greek. There's no partiality. It doesn't matter what your religious upbringing is. It doesn't matter what you've heard, you haven't heard. It's irrelevant. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew first because they were entrusted with the oracles of God and also to the Greek or the pagan. In other words, God is going to render exactly what he owes you, what you deserve. That word render means to pay what you owe. God is going to pay the proper wage. He's not going to look at you one day and say, well, you've got a nice family, you worked hard, and you know, you're a real nice, good, good guy, good, nice husband, good wife, whatever. And you know, based on that, I'm going to just kind of give you a little more than anything. No, he's not going to do that. That's not how God works. He's going to pay the proper wage. And how does he pay? He pays according to our deeds. We looked at that last week. God will always judge an unbeliever and his deeds as unrighteous because they are. They're evil. And you can always judge a believer because his deeds are righteous. It's that simple. It's, 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 it's that easy. The difference is basically this. If you understand this, all of an unbeliever's deeds are unrighteous. Everything they do. It doesn't matter how good, how many homeless people they feed, how many people, babies they see. It doesn't matter. All those deeds are unrighteous if they're an unbeliever, if they haven't put their faith and trust in Christ. Matter of fact, the Bible says they're like filthy rags. But not all a believer's deeds are unrighteous. There's a qualification there. For a believer, some, some may be unrighteous because they're done with the wrong motive. But if you do it with the right motive and you're saved, God looks at those deeds, as those works, as something that's going to get a reward, something that's righteous. It's not going to be burned up. 
See, it isn't that an unbeliever just always sins constantly. And a believer always lives a perfect life. That's not the basis of the judgment here. It's that an unbeliever never does any righteousness, but a believer sometimes squeaks out some righteousness by the grace of God. So those righteous deeds that flow from the life of a believer are basically the manifestation of God in our life. They're God working through the power of the Spirit. They're going to seek glory. They're going to seek honor. They're going to have an interest in immortality. They're going to look beyond this this present age. They're not going to live just for the job and the big house and the fancy car and and everything. They're going to have a, a perspective that goes into eternality, into eternal aspect of heaven. They're going to have a heavenly mindedness about them. But the other folks, basically, they look at God and they run the other way. They rebel because they're not obeying the truth. They're only obeying unrighteousness. And so you see that the deeds of both are obviously manifest. Now, the problem with that is, is the standard that God has for us is way up here. If I ask you, could you, by yourself, do something that God would find righteous? By yourself, left to your own, do you seek glory? Do you seek honor? Do you seek immortality? No. You'd have to be honest with that. We don't have that capacity. We're fallen beings. And so what Paul is doing is he's basically giving this indictment that indicts everybody. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how religious you are. Or how long you've been a Christian or or not. Or whatever. It's, It's irrelevant. Here in chapter 2, everybody is being condemned. Everybody is under the condemnation of God. And what Paul is saying is you will be judged by your deeds. And you know what? Your deeds aren't going to cut it. Now, there's such a thing as that doesn't mean that everybody's just, you know, Satan incarnate doing evil continually. That's not true. There's a lot of good, quote, people that do nice things. They're kind to people. That's, that's called relative goodness. Everybody kind of has that. But that's not what we're going to be judged by. If you're just relying on the relative goodness, you're going to be condemned along with everything else. Just because you do something good once in a while, that doesn't get your brownie points with God. Further on in... In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he basically says all this. He says, For by the works of the law, no human being, nobody, zero, will be justified in his sight. And he, he, he basically says all this in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world is in this whole boat together. There's nobody that's more righteous than anybody else. We're all fallen beings. That's why when you run into people who give the impression that they're more righteous than anyone else, they're self-righteous, which we've talked about several weeks ago. And that's the most condemning of all things because they can't even see their own self-righteousness. They think they're somehow better than everybody else. So they talk down their spiritual nose to everybody. That's not Christ-like. And so we all manifest this knowledge because we condemn others. We know what's right and wrong. And we'll be judged on the truth, the truth that we're sinners. And we've all been guilty of, of trading the grace of God. And sometimes, most times, our deeds are lacking. We're all in the same boat. And that's what it says in Romans 3.10. We know this verse. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, that's the basic problem with the whole, the new, it's not even new anymore, but in, in, in the church today, the whole seeker movement. Well, we're going to create a, a worship service for seekers. People that are seeking God. And so we've got to dumb everything down to that level so they don't feel offended when they come. And, and you know, as believers, we just got to sacrifice that. And, you know, we want it to be a place where they can just kind of relax and hang loose and, and you know, understand that we love them and God is love. And, and it leaves a giant hole. Because people come and they begin to feel religious and they're no better than anybody else then. And somehow they have been designated as seekers and they're on this path, this spiritual journey. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple. I mean, if, if someone is seeking God, it's because God is drawing them. That's the only way that someone would ever seek God. And you don't need to compromise the gospel to entertain a seeker why God is actively working in their heart. They're perfectly content to hear the Word of God. Why? Because they're seeking God. They want to know more about God. You don't have to dumb down the gospel. You don't have to change everything so they feel comfortable. They shouldn't feel comfortable if they haven't come to Christ yet. They should feel convicted. They should feel uneasy. They should feel like there's a decision to make and I haven't made it yet. But you know what? We can't do this on our own. And so we're all condemned in this text because none of us can produce these kind of works that are pleasing to God. The only way they can be produced is after you come to Christ and they're produced by the Spirit of God. It's kind of interesting because when you actually look at this idea of your deeds and your works. I want you to understand something, and it's, it's very crucial that you understand this. Justification, listen, by faith alone, justification by faith alone applies to the time of entrance into salvation. That's it. Justification by faith alone applies to the time of entrance into salvation. It does not apply to the time of judgment. You're not going to be judged on your faith. Do you understand that? You're going to be judged according to your works, according to your deeds. Now we're saved by faith alone. In Christ alone. But we will be judged, Paul says here in Romans, by our works. That's what he says. Well, I haven't taught that before. That seems kind of diametrically opposed. When God, in, in, in His grace, in His free grace, receives a sinner at the time of His conversion, He doesn't ask for anything more. The only thing he asks for that we believe and we submit to his lordship, we submit to Christ as Savior and Lord. That's it. It's a free gift. But from that moment on, after that believer makes that commitment, he enters into a responsibility of obedience. And so the mark of that believer becomes the obedient pattern in their life. Some commentators call it the fruit of grace. See, we we have this all wrong today in churches for the most part. We think that somehow faith means that now that I've received Jesus, I can do whatever I want. (laughs) That's not what the Bible teaches. Just like if you went and you applied for a job and they hired you, And you thought, well, you showed up your first day, well, I can do whatever I want, I got the job. No. There's responsibilities that come along with the job. Just like there's responsibilities, there's works that come along with our salvation. True faith always, always results in holy living. 
doesn't mean perfect. There's going to be issues. There's going to be times we fail, we fall. We all do that. That's why we call it the grace of God, right? That's why God gives us forgiveness for those times. But there has to be, beloved, some evidence. There has to be some evidence of someone seeking God and His glory and His honor and being heavenly-minded because that's the standard by which we'll be judged. We're not going to be judged by our faith. There's a lot of people that have faith. You understand this? And faith isn't always good. There's living faith, right? And there's faith that is what? Dead. Turn over to James. James chapter 2. This is very, very practical for us as believers. Because we live in such a world that it's kind of eroded the truth down to this this gospel that's not even a gospel anymore. James chapter 2, verse 9. It speaks of impartiality. He says, but if you show partiality, you are, what? Committing sin. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. Same thing that we saw in Romans chapter 2. You commit sin when you do that. If you break the law in one area, you've broken the whole law. Verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable, what? For all of it. And then he gives a couple illustrations there. Jump down to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have what? Works. He asks the question, can that faith save him? Good question, don't you think? Is it good enough just to say, yeah, I got faith in Jesus, I got faith in Jesus? James says, wait a minute. You've got to test this faith. How do you test it? Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, ah, just go in peace and be warmed, and you have the ability to help him, without giving him or them the things they need for their body, what good is that? What's he saying? He said, what kind of faith is that? You say you got faith in God and he's going to provide all the stuff and then you run across somebody that has need and you just blow them off? Wait a minute. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, look, if it does not have works, is what? Dead faith. You can have faith that's dead. How do you know? Are there any works in your life? Is your, is your life conforming to the principles of godliness that we, we know to be true from the Word of God? Or are you the same person you were before you got saved? In quotes, saved. So he says it's dead faith. But look at verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Can't. And he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He goes into this issue of Abraham. Look at what he says. Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see, that faith was, look at, active. It was living along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of faith. Why? Because he had 
or a friend of God. Why? Because he had faith? No, because he had works. You see that a person is justified by works and not, look at that, by faith alone. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith from apart from works is dead. It means that it doesn't do anything for you. The point simply is this. Men are going to be judged by their works. You're saved by your faith. You're judged by your works. And the only way that anyone on this earth can produce a single righteous work is to put their faith and trust in Christ and be filled with the Spirit of God so that Spirit of God creates godliness in your life. God will judge by works. What we see now, back to Romans, that God is impartial. He's an impartial God. When it comes to God's judgment, this is the next element here, judge with impartiality, verses 11 through 15. There's no respect of persons with God. When God goes about judging men by knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, all these things, He will absolutely do so without favoring anyone. Based only on the subjective reality of their faith in Christ and the objective confirmation of their faith, their good works. Some people say, well, do you think God is going to judge everyone the same? Does God judge everybody the same? That's the question. What it tells us in Scripture is that God will not be unfair because He's just. But it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody will get the same reward or the same punishment. There's different degrees of reward. There's different degrees of punishment. We know that when we face the Lord Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat, some of our works will be gold, silver, right? Precious stones. And some of our works will be what? Wood, hay, stubble. They'll be burned up. Some of us are going to have a lot of wood, hay, stubble. Some of us are going to have a lot of gold and maybe precious stones, something like that. The Bible points to crowns being promised to believers, those who are faithful in the Scripture. Some people will get several crowns. Some people may get one. Crown of salvation. And the same is true of punishment. God judges men based on knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, And with impartiality. And so that raises two groups here in verse 12. He says, first of all, for all who have sinned without the law. Without the law. That's the first group. Who are they? These are the people who are the Gentiles. The pagans. They didn't have the Mosaic law. They didn't have any special revelation. They didn't have any written scripture. It would be wrong for God to judge them based on the fact that if if they did have that, when they didn't have it, that wouldn't be right. God will judge them based on the fact that they never had the law of God. And he says, for all who have sinned without the law, look at, will also what? Perish. That's the judgment. Without the law. Some liberal commentators look at that and go, that just means they're just kind of going to go away. No. The Bible never says you just kind of go away. You don't just go to a box in the ground and and that's it. No, there's, there's eternal place, heaven or hell. The Bible clearly says that. So what's he talking about here? These, They will perish. He uses a Greek word here that means to destroy or to put to death. But it's used of the eternal state. It doesn't mean annihilation. 
It means punishment. What it means is basically it's ruined. Whatever this is, it's going to perish. It's ruined. It can no longer be used for its intended purpose. What's the intended purpose God created us all for? For what? To bring Him glory, right? Well, when, when that stops, and that's impossible anymore, you're rendered useless. You will go to eternal punishment. When people don't come to God through Christ, it says basically they're ruined for their intended purpose. For what He created them. In Revelation, I'm not going to go there, but in Revelation 17 and 20, it says that the beast will go into destruction. That's what it means. And it says in 1920, it says the beast was cast alive. It's not annihilation. You're living in the eternal state. Cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So this word doesn't mean perish. doesn't mean you just go out of existence. It means that you're going to live on in judgment. And Paul says here they will perish without the law. That means their ruin will basically be taken into consideration with their lack of knowledge. It won't be as severe as those who have the law, who've been given truth and rejected it. If these people never had the truth, God's still going to judge them and he's going to find them guilty, and we're going to look at that. They're still going to perish. They don't get a back door to heaven. They don't get a do-over. They'll find themselves in hell one day, only to a lesser degree than those who have the law. Verse 12 there, it says, tells us why those without the law will perish, as many as have sinned without the law. Even though they didn't have the law of God, they still sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. I mean, just because we don't have a Bible or we don't have the law of God doesn't mean we don't sin. We still sin. This individual chooses a lifetime and lifestyle of sinfulness. That's the first group. They'll be held accountable. Well, then he says in verse 12 there, And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This refers to the group of the Jews who received the word of God, who were supposed to be caretakers of the word of God. The prophets, the holy writers, all those, they were entrusted to the people of God. Today, in in our modern society, you could say, you know what, this would apply to the people of God within the church. We've been given the truth of God's word. If we're not doing everything we can to live in accord with God's word, we're going to be held account. That's why the Bible says that, you know what, if you're seeking to teach or you're seeking to to, um, lead a Bible study, whatever, be careful. Because you're going to be held to a very, very strict judgment. They're going to be judged according to greater light because they've received greater light. They knew a lot more than the pagans who never had the word of God. That's why it's it's fearful to be what the Bible calls an apostate. Someone who knows the truth and constantly turns their back on it. They know the right thing to do, but they're just constantly looking the other way. They don't want to, be de- they don't want to have to deal with it. And that's what we see here in verse 13. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God. See, the doers of the law are the ones who are justified. Not the hearers. He took this kind of a step further. And he said, you know, I want you to understand, it's not good enough just to hear 
the Bible. That, that Greek word translated hearer who here is not the word normally that's used for hear in the original language. Usually it's a kuo. Here it's a kroatai. It means this. It's used specifically of people who hear. They, they're constant hearers educated in the law. Vincent says this. He describes that word this way, this translation. Those who are in the business of hearing. <laughs> That's it. You just come to church and you just hear. Well, this is great. Well, wonderful sermon. Oh, well, beautiful. And you walk out the doors. It has no connection at all to your life. You don't even pick up your, the word of God the rest of the week. No connection. But boy, you're back in church the next week. You're hearing. <laughs> you're here to hear. See, that's exactly what the Jewish people did in the synagogue. Week after week, they heard the law. They heard it explained to them. They were professional hearers. Some of you, boy, man, there's not a Christian show on TV. You don't watch or listen to the radio or whatever. You're going to be, listen, the only thing that's going to get you, not that it's bad, but the only thing that's going to get you if you're just a hearer is more condemnation. (laughs) Because you're not doing what you hear. Don't be a professional hearer. Second group, he says, but be a doer. The doers of the law are righteous before, but but doers of the law will be justified, he says. See, it's not those who hear who are justified, but those who make it their business to obey what they hear. I mean, how many times as parents have you told your young person to do something? And they hear you. But somehow it doesn't get translated to doing what they've been asked to do. It kind of creates a little tension in the family, wouldn't you say? Can you imagine what God feels like when we sit under the teaching of his word week after week after week and we don't do anything about it. It doesn't apply to our lives. James one twenty two says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only because when you do that, you're just deceiving yourself. You're just putting on some cloak coming into church, acting like you're spiritual and then leaving total disconnect from your life. What are you doing? You're deceiving yourself. You're you're under the deception. Somehow, if you come to church on a Sunday morning, that gets you brownie points with God. Somehow, when you walk in these these doors, God is up in heaven going, man, you're here. That's so wonderful. Wow, praise the Lord, man. Ten more points for you. That's not happening. Are you doing what the Word of God instructs us to do? Not that you're going to do it perfectly. I mean, like I said, we all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily. That's where the grace of God comes in. But our heart's desire should not just be to hear the word, but to apply it and to live by it. God's law does not protect hearers from judgment. In fact, the more they hear without obeying, the greater judgment you will have. That's the purpose of the law. Because God requires perfect obedience. You can't just, you know, keep nine of the ten commandments and God's going to let you pass. No. You have to keep all ten perfectly, plus all the other laws, besides the ten. Who's going to do that? Do you see the point? Nobody can do that. That's why you need a Savior. You're not going to save yourself. That's why you turn to God, who is powerful, and, and great and mercy and love and forgiveness. And you come to him undone. Why are you undone? Because you look at God's law and he's asking you to do something that you can't do. You ever been in that situation? Has somebody ever asked you to do something that you just can't do and they continue to insist that you do it? What does that lead to? It leads to frustration. I can't do it. I, oh, yeah, yeah, just, just go ahead and do it. No, I, I, I don't have the ability to do what you're asking me to do. That's the frustration that brings us to a Savior. God has painted 
the level way up here, the standard high. No one can attain. No one is good. No one is righteous before God. But he says, you know what? All's not lost because I provided a Savior to provide for your salvation. I know you can't save yourself. That's why Jesus came. That's why he died. That's why he hung on a cross. That's why he rose on the third day. The purpose of the law was to drive us to God. Totally undone. Not to try to keep it. Verse 14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law, look at this, by the nature, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. What's he speaking of here? Some people say, well, what about the people that never had the law? How can they be condemned by not obeying it? Have you ever heard that? What about the people over in Africa that never hear about Jesus? That doesn't seem like fair. Fair play on God's part to condemn them if they never heard. Well, wait a minute. Romans 4.15 says, Where no law is, there is no transgression. Romans 5.13 says, Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Romans 7.7, 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin, but by the law. So if those things are true, beloved, how can a Gentile, how can someone without the law be held responsible for not having the written law in their hand? And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the Word of God, the oracles of God. Verses 14 and 15 here give us the answer. Because people are responsible even if they haven't heard the written law. Because obviously they have a law within themselves. Paul gives us the four reasons here. First of all, creation. We already looked at that back in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. Why? Because that which may be known of God is manifest to them. What's he mean? The creation is clearly seen all around you. And if you reject that, you're without excuse. So that's number one, creation. People can look around and know that there's a God. You'd have to be a total idiot not to look around and say, wow, someone put this thing together. I mean, when my son-in-law was out here last time around Christmas, I think we went down to the the Ferrari and the Maserati place there on El Camino, you know. And we walked in, and it's like, just like, you know, we're not here to buy anything. And they kind of looked at it like, yeah, we, we know, <laughs> don't touch anything. But as we were looking around, <laughs> you know, with the grandkids, I was looking at these cars, and I'm thinking, man, every little detail, every stitch is perfect. Leather smells so good. The paint looks so good. You look at the engine, it's just perfect. Every wire in its place. I would have to be an idiot to say that someone didn't build that car. You'd have to be a total fool to not come to that conclusion. Well, can you imagine how much more intricate creation is? We're going to find out in a couple weeks when Dave teaches a seminar for two Sundays. You're going to come to understand a lot more about creation and about evolution. All you have to do is look around, creation. Secondly, their conduct. That's why he says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, look, the things contained in the law, even though nobody's told them that it's wrong, they're a law unto themselves. They don't have the external written word of God, but they have something in their heart. They have something that God has put inside them that lets them know, hey, this is wrong. Pagans naturally do things written in God's law without even ever even reading the law of God. They know the difference between right and wrong. You don't have to even teach your child as far as right and wrong. They, they, they have something inside them that knows that even when they're little, little crawling babies and they grab somebody else's toy, what's the other baby do? Cries. That, that's sin. That's just natural behavior of a human being. 
You don't have to teach them that. And as you get older, you understand that it's wrong to do certain things. Nobody even has to tell you that. I mean, there's a lot of people in our society that believe it's wrong to kill. There are a lot of people that believe it's, it's good to feed the hungry and help the people who are sick. It's wonderful to do those things. But that's just basic human nature almost. It comes down to what their, their motive is when this is playing out. But they have the law of God even though they don't physically have it. It's in their, in their, in their heart. And that leads to the third one there, their conscience. It says the Gentiles, Gentiles show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. We all have a conscience. We all know when it's wrong. Conscience simply means co-knowledge. It means to know along with. It refers to a person's inner sense of right and wrong. The, the moral conscience that we possess really pronounces judgments on, on one's thoughts, on one's attitudes, speech, deeds. Sometimes I even think the, the Crystal's dog Duke has a conscience. Because <laughs> you walk in the house and he's doing something wrong, man. He's so sheepish. He knows he did something wrong. <laughs> Something's telling him, I don't know. That's what a conscience does. But you know what? As a Christian, your conscience can be seared. It can be scarred. That's why when, when we see sin, when, 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 when something is attractive to, to us in the flesh, we need to run as fast as we can. Because the biggest danger that you face as a Christian is to say, oh, that's never going to affect me. That's never going to happen to me. Or sometimes sin becomes like a little pet. We keep it and we nurture it. And pretty soon our hearts are scarred to the sensitivity that God wants us to understand what you're doing is a disgrace in my, my sight. You would never do this in front of me. Why are you doing this? I, don't you think I can see this? Don't you understand that this grieves my heart? This is what Christ died for. You're throwing it back in my face by willfully going out and doing something that is against the glory of God. As Christians, we have consciences. We have to make sure that we don't scar them, but also as, even as non-Christians, they have, they have consciences. They can become dull, the Bible says. The last thing here is contemplation. It says their thoughts are meanwhile accusing or else accusing another in other words, when you stop and you really begin to think about these things, when a person who is without Christ hears that someone murdered a little child, you don't have to be a Christian to have a negative reaction to that. There's something in their heart. There's something that they think about. They contemplate it and they say, wow, this is wrong. That's why we have the, the whole system of justice. That's why people are, are, are put in prison because they've done something wrong. The judge isn't up there reading from the Bible what they did wrong, but it's an underlying basis. It's a foundation of our complete justice system. In verse 16 here in closing, he says, basically, on that day when, according to my gospel, and this is the last principle of judgment, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What's he talking about? He's talking about your motivation. He's talking about your motivation. You know, there's nothing wrong with questioning somebody's actions because we can see them, right? They're lived out before us. Somebody's doing something wrong as a brother or sister in Christ. We need to come alongside of them and say, hey, you know, this isn't right. You need to kind of change this. There's no, that's what the body of Christ is for. You don't just turn a blind eye. But the one thing you never want to do is question somebody's motivation. What is their motive? How can you know that? You don't know my motive. 
for standing up here and teaching. You, you don't have a clue. I don't know your motive of sitting out there and listening. <laughs> I don't have a clue. So we can't question people's motives, but you know what? God will judge according to the principle of motive. Because even when we're doing these good deeds, what is our motivation? Why are we doing it? That's what 1 Chronicles 28.9 says. Thou Solomon, my son, know thou the God of the Father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the imaginations of the thoughts. God sees everything anyway. You're not hiding anything from him. Psalm 139, 1-12, I love this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thought afar off. You search out my path, my lying down. Everything's acquainted with you. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hand me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Wait a minute. God's in hell? The judgment of God is in hell. God is definitely represented in hell. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not darkness to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God knows our motivations. Jeremiah 17.10, I've searched the heart, I test the conscience, even to give to each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. And then Jesus, Matthew 6.4, the Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. See, our innermost secrets may be hidden from human judgment. You may be able to put up a good front, But trust me, they're not hidden before a holy God who sees everything. And one day we will be judged impartially based on our deeds and even our motives will be brought into judgment. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we all stand before you, a holy God who judges righteously each one. And Lord, the word of God says, who can stand? If you were to count the number of ways that we've wronged you, Lord, who could stand? The idea is none of us, none has done good. There's not one who seeks after God. If we know you here this morning, it's only because of your grace in our life, your, your, your love and your forgiveness that's led us, your patience that's led us to repentance. Father, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, we're still responsible to follow you, to believe. But Lord, it's not our belief or our faith that is judged, it's our works. And so Lord, I pray that the people represented here today would understand that when they walk out of this building, what do they live like the rest of the week? Do they live lives that are honoring to you? Do they live lives that are interested in eternal things? Or are they just going through the routine like everybody else in this world? Living each day for the fullest. Getting their best life now. Father, we we pray that we would have repentant hearts toward this. Lord, that you would lead us and guide us to repentance. Father, we thank you for this table that represents the sacrifice of your son here. And Father, we thank you that he came to die in our place. That he paid completely our sin in its total completeness. And Father, we thank you that we don't have to do a a dance to get a hug from you as our creator, Lord. We, We simply have to come by faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. And Father, you say that you'll save us. You'll transfer the righteousness of your son to us, people who are completely unrighteous and not worthy at all. 
Father, if there's any here this morning who've yet to put their faith or trust in you, I pray that today would be the day they cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me in my unbelief, Lord. If, if there's areas I struggle in, Lord, give me wisdom. Help this truth that I sat under this morning penetrate my heart. Draw me to yourself. I pray that we would leave this building today knowing that there's a world out there that's lost and dying and going to hell. And Father, you've left us here for a purpose, and that's to share your word, to share your gospel with all those who have yet to hear. And I pray that first of all, we would do it first of all by our life, that we live a life worthy of the gospel, and then also by our lips, that we could share the message of the gospel in a way that would penetrate and make change in people's lives. We pray, Lord, that as we come to this communion table, that you would just uh, clear our hearts, our minds, our thoughts. Father, this is an open table in that it's, it's open to all who know Christ. And Father, we pray that you would um, just allow us to remember the sacrifice of your son in a reverent way here this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.